Hello, uh, this is Rachel coming to you semi-live from the COVID confines of my desk. Settle in, grab a cold brew, some tea. I've got some interesting stuff, I think, to share with you. Um, and I know what you're all thinking. Yes, Henry is here, right beneath my feet, panting. He's kind of shaking the desk, actually, and excitedly <laughs> looking at me anytime my inflection raises even the slightest bit. Uh, also, he is in charge of editing and has a Gmail account, so you can write to him with any complaints if the editing is unsatisfactory, but keep in mind he doesn't have thumbs and drools all over the mouse and keyboard, so give him a break. He's doing the best he can with what he has at the time. Um, so, uh, the purpose of what I have for you today is fairly straightforward. Uh, as this class involves historical foundations of our practice and science, I thought I would take it down a bit of a, a diverted route from what we've been talking about um, and kind of a tangential idea of the historical foundations element. Lately, because of a multitude of reasons, some personal, some pandemic, and some professional, I've become more intrigued by the area of forensic psychology and the implications it could have for us. Um, furthermore, I would also like to use this platform as something to think about and encourage discussion around um, this topic as it is a fairly new area of what we could, um, of what could be a portion of our future practice and profession should we decide. Um, so when I say what could be our practice, I mean entering into professional realms where we might put our training and talents to use in, in a more forensic sense. So let me let me back up a bit and, and define what I'm really talking about a little bit more succinctly. So essentially, what is a forensic psychologist? Why should I care? We're in a school psychology program. Some of us are going to take a more clinical route. Some of us want to solely work in schools. So why should you continue listening past this two-minute mark? Um, so it is the area of forensic psychology is a recognized subgroup of a role that a licensed psychologist could take um, and our field working in the schools or working in a clinical setting does interact with the legal system um, and recently I have experienced this with a number of clients and families so it really kind of gave more of a, a weight and importance to to delving into this a little bit deeper. Um, I have a few answers as to what it looks like or I have few answers excuse me is as to what it really looks like to effectively collaborate with these individuals um, or really understand what it is they do. I, I think the legal system um, seems to be uh, a completely different planet when you consider, you know, working in a school and the day-to-day -day responsibilities there. Um, therefore, I see it mostly as a professional responsibility um, at the minimum to understand the role of a forensic psychologist. Uh, as a bonus, I am intrigued, and some of you might be intrigued, as to what service delivery actually looks like on a one-to-one -one basis. Um, the field is very fascinating, you know, aside from how it's popularized in the media and how that is really largely not the true picture. You think of Law & Order SVU, uh, the psychologist Dr. Wong, you know, that's that's not really what it is in in the fullest extent, and so... The question then becomes, well, what do they do? And um, the more I'm working with children at internship and seeing the effects 
of the way the legal system um, has created kind of like throughout the family and the family system, um, I'm beginning to put together a fuller picture of what um, this profession might actually look like. Um, so in essence, I would like to kind of like define what this role or job would look like as a forensic psychologist. So, um, sources have defined this as a collaboration with the legal system to best serve the public at large and provide necessary mental health services to ensure the safety of an individual, as well as the systems and communities in which they reside. So this would involve understanding offenders, why they offend, and offer treatment afterwards. And the APA um, defines this as uh, the description and measurement of capacities relevant to legal questions is an important goal of forensic psychology. As a result, the forensic specialist attempts to create relevant, accurate, and credible data and conclusions that inform legal arguments and judicial decision-making but do not intrude upon it. So again, highlighting the difference between the roles of those um, more integrated in the legal system, lawyers, judges, police officers, um, and what our role would be. Continuing, they say, um, there is a special focus on the need to clarify conflicts between psychological ethical standards and the demands of law. The, the synthesis of psychological and legal issues distinguishes forensic populations from other specialties. So it really is more of the melding of what we might have to offer a client think in like a school counseling setting or a clinical setting one-on-one -on -one in that therapeutic alliance combined with what the legal system um, needs and what our, our roles might be to serve um, clients who might be integrated in that system. Um, so essentially the responsibilities are multitudinous, a lot of consultation. You could actually work directly in the prison system um, if that is something that interests you and you find yourself more gravitating towards that court mandated therapy um this is the the piece i was touching on before i'm seeing a lot of um clients on our unit that are choosing to to stay at the hospital for about a, a 10 day stay as a way to um either expunge their record um or just like a, a means to an end right so the the question there becomes how how beneficial really is our, our treatment or our therapy if it's a means of escape? Um, and, and that deferment is something that's becoming more common. Um, it's become more common over the past three weeks. We have about 14 beds uh, between two units that I'm working on right now. And about five kids um, are, are there because of some something they did to get themselves in trouble. And they're choosing therapy in a in an inpatient stay um so kind of like navigating that would be something that either the clinical psychologist and the forensic psychologist could collaborate on or the forensic psychologist in that court hearing in that system um could weigh in on before we see them in the clinical setting um to continue the resp potential responsibilities risk assessment is a big one competency hearings which we'll get to later and more of the historical basis um expert testimony which we may or may not enjoy but there are those who really enjoy that and would seek that as their primary professional role and responsibility and then in all of this assessment is woven in which i think is truly fascinating and there are some great tools out there which i won't get into in this particular episode but um it's it's, it's quite different than the way we might think of assessment um, 
in the classic way we've been trained thus far. So if you are interested by this and you thought you think you might want to like have some experience in this realm at some point in your life, congratulations. You, upon completing this program, will have um, the necessary qualifications to do so. So you can have a PsyD or a PhD. So the qualification there would be holding a doctoral level degree in psychology. Um, and then with additional professional training in more specified settings and populations. So still satisfying that more ethical responsibility that's outlined in the APA. Um, that we do not operate outside of our bounds of competence and gaining experience and supervision in those areas is key if you want to work with a more specialized or specific population. So with that, uh, if you need to get up and stretch, take a walk, get some water, feed the dog, I don't know. Um, take a take a pause right now because we're kind of going to shift what I'm talking about. And uh, yeah, we're going to switch gears. So now it's time to go in the way, way back machine, specifically talking about the, more, the origins of the field of forensic psychology, more specifically, all the way back to 1581. And in 1581, there was a legal treatise, um, and this involved kind of that classic definition of what is competence, competence specifically to stand trial and culpability. So um, essentially what came out of this, this decision was um, a classic quote that is circulating kind of how we began to build a case for what it means to be culpable or competent to stand trial. And that quote is, if a madman or a natural fool or a lunatic in the time of his lunacy. So that would mean they are not to be held accountable for the act committed. Um, so if this act occurred when this person was a madman or a natural fool or a lunatic, so to speak, then they would not be held responsible. And this decision was made out of the case where it was actually a, a homicide. Um, and so the British courts, this was in England, came up with the wild beast test um, following this in the 18th century, in which defendants were not to be convicted if they understood the crime no better than, quote, an infant, an infant, excuse me, a brute or a wild beast. So, and so it doesn't sound um, particularly advanced when you look at today's standards, but at the time to, to suggest that someone could not be held culpable for something they physically did because of maybe like something that was wrong or defect in the mind was advanced to acknowledge that as separate from the physical actions of a human being. Um, so time to, to jump Jump through time again, do a little time warp. We're going to go all the way to 1843. Um, and this, again, took place in Great Britain after the unity of the United Kingdom. So historically at this time, um, there was a lot of residual tension surrounding the integration between Great Britain and Scotland. Tensions which lasted um, and still might last <laughs> uh, to present day. Um, so given that historical context, um, that will kind of help breathe Bring some understanding into this trial, um, which is often referred to as the McNaughton Rule um, or um, the McNaughton Ruling, depending on which source you look at. So essentially, um, a man named Daniel McNaughton, a Scottish woodcutter, was on trial for murder of a man named Edward Drummond. Um, he became convinced that, at this time, Mr. McNaughton, uh, that the Prime Minister was, quote, messing with his stuff 
That's kind of as, as specific as the record gets in terms of what he said. So this essentially grew into the belief that the prime minister at the time, Robert Peel, was single-handedly meddling in his interpersonal relationships, stealing his money, moving items, and stealing supplies. Uh, and just based on that tiny, tiny little piece of information, what does this sound like we would classify this as today? Just think for a second before I give you an answer. To me, this sounds like a delusion. Right? So we didn't have a word for it. They hadn't developed a particular term for that then. Um, but essentially, that's kind of what this case is getting at. Is like there was, some, there was some break, there was some delusion going on that potentially maybe could have made McNaughton um, not culpable for what happened next. So McNaughton developed a plan of action. And it was following the fact that his delusions became so distressing that... Um, he decided that action had to be taken against the prime minister. So what happened? Uh, the assassination attempt <laughs> went haywire. So again, that was McNaughton attempting to assassinate the prime minister, Robert Peel. Um, it went haywire, accidentally shot and killed the secretary slash assistant to the prime minister in the back of the head, um, a man named Edward Drummond, who I brought up before. So a case of mistaken identity based on um, a delusion where he thought he was being persecuted. So in this trial, um, McNaughton was determined that his delusions made him incompetent and not culpable for his actions. This was based on a trial that included nine witnesses um, that were able to speak to the grandiosity of his delusions, and the ruling was, and this is, is what I could find the first time that this was used in history. So not guilty by reason of insanity, sometimes to shortened to, and sometimes this is shortened to NGI. Um, this is really the first time this was used to allow someone to get off of a, a crime they had committed. So a uh, piece of trivia, uh, who was the English monarch at the time? you know again i will review this was the year 1843 uh answer queen victoria and uh if you see a picture of this lovely young woman she was not having it she did not buy this uh not guilty by reason of insanity defense and um to add to it a little insult to injury the secretary was one of her very close friends and confidants and, of course, the Prime Minister always works very closely with the Queen as well, so she wasn't particularly happy that both both her close confidant, the Secretary, and the Prime Minister were put and could potentially have been put in harm's way. Um, so, um, she kind of changed the way that people saw um, or would rule on not guilty by reason of insanity, so... She said that you could be assumed innocent, but insisted that all aspects of the individual were under even more scrutiny. So importantly, legally, the set of precedent for the discovery and evaluation to understand if the individual knew what he or she was doing at the time um, and carrying out a plan with a motive was a piece of that. Or if they were unaware of what they were doing at the time because of a, quote, disease of the mind. Right. And as another little caveat and something that I learned was that the burden of proof um, in terms of 
um, who must like be the key person in the defense um, is on the individual. So in this case, the individual must be the key person defending themselves in this state as that as they were in a state of insanity um, rather than the state having to prove that they were not insane at the time that the crime was committed. So, um, and so now we're going to go to a, a third time warp. All right. So we're going to go all the way up from when we took our original trip in the way, way back machine. We're going to go to 1981 and I want to bring up a name and I want to see if this triggers anything, um, for you guys. And that name is John Hinckley Jr. What did he do? Why is he important? Well, you might have said to yourself, he attempted to assassinate the president. Uh, however, the reasoning is what's really quite interesting. Um, so evidently, he was in love with an actress, Jodie Foster, to be more specific, uh, and he needed to prove his love for her in a demonstration of something brave and large and important. He really wanted to act on this and demonstrate this physically. So um, it's also worth mentioning at the time that he does have a lengthy history of mental illness, um, which, as it turns out, is not uh, a qualification for defense, but is a piece of evidence, which is, I think, um, promising because just because you struggle with issues of mental illness does not mean you're going to become violent. In fact, um, those with mental illness or serious conditions, I'm thinking like the big ones that people try to throw out there, schizophrenia, dissociative identity disorder, um, it's m more likely that those people will have acts of violence perpetrated on them rather than actually going out into the world and doing something harmful to somebody else. Um, and so... So, in the end, um, he was actually found, again, not guilty by reason of insanity. Um, and this is really important to bring up this case in particular because um, his past psychiatric history definitely played a role into both sides, into um, the prosecution characterizing him as legally sane. Of course, they want to hold him culpable, um, and that's... It's not always a motive of theirs, um, but it, it's fairly common as um, not favoring a not guilty by reason of insanity, right? Um, and then his psychiatric reports portrayed him as definitely not culpable by reason of insanity. So um, really the public went bananas and it led to a reform in what we know as the Insanity Defense Reform Act of 1984, which really altered the rules um, and further defined kind of the assessment basis and how much had to be done um, to, again, put that burden of proof on the individual for claiming insanity. Um, there's a really great um, book about this case, and also, like, Hinckley's parents wrote about... Um, kind of his history and why they thought he had more of a case than um, than not for claiming uh, not guilty by reason of insanity. It's called Breaking Points. And it's just one of those things. It's not particularly scientific, but I think it's interesting and maybe more in the form of a case study. Um, 
and again, they cited reasons of um, personality disorders, schizoid, um, potentially or narcissistic personality disorders. Um, but again, it led to some to some important reform. So it wasn't just you claim that you have mental health issues and quote unquote, and then you are found not guilty. Um, so, okay, in the essence of being more careful with how we treat those who are um, undergoing either evaluation or are being tried for some serious crime. So now we're going to transition into an area that just talks about like influential figures and kind of what bolstered the area and study of uh, forensic psychology. So one of those people is Hugo Munsterberg. Um, His book was perhaps um, his greatest contribution out of his profession, and it was the field of uh, applied and forensic psychology. So either one. Um, And it really offered and discussed problems of eyewitness testimony, which is still something that comes up today, um, false confections and and interrogations. Um, And rose out of work, really, he did with James McKean Cattell regarding memory. Um, And that, that last name should strike a chord with you and maybe like bring up something in your own memory um and speaking of Cattell and cognitive assessment um it's just like a sad history of overassessment and the bias um of those who are found guilty of a crime are feeble-minded so historically they were just not used correctly um and really portrayed those standing trial unfairly um and they do have some role in competency hearings the what I could from what I could surmise, it was more in minors, where we're very concerned if they understand, um, especially in the interrogation setting, if they understand kind of what's going on, um, what they have to ask for, if they're really just being put in the scared position of being a child against an adult or the cognitive age of a child against an adult. Um, I'm just going to touch on risk assessment as a part of the profession very briefly because we've had plenty of classes on that. Uh, profiles are not the end-all be-all there's more focus on risk assessment and training um so they're different than what we might be used in a school and this is often conducted with law enforcement and psychologists are able to weigh in on um evaluating the risk there Uh, multiple assessments are advised for different uses and they are all actuarial in nature Again, so think Geico, right? Like Geico bases your your rate on your potential for risk. It's not a predictive measure. Um, the clearest things that I could find that really influenced this strongly in this particular setting were gender, previous offenses, and familial ties, also nature of offenses. And if you go through some of these um, assessments that are used in the, the forensic realm, which I have linked in the notes, um, some of the questions are, are really fascinating. And if you get to thinking about them, it's more clear why they included them. One of them is, have you ever cohabitated, um, with a romantic partner? And I think that one's really interesting because what if your, um, religious identity doesn't allow you to do that? Um, in that case, it would still count against you. And I think that's just an interesting question to process through as we're reading through some of these assessments, if you want to dig a little deeper. Um, so um, some of these guidelines are given for administration, um, 
like of the actual risk assessment are more towards um, the time one should spend incarcerated, which I think is a funny kind of role we might have to play. I don't want to say to play like decision maker or judge, but it definitely it could weigh in depending on um, your jurisdiction, kind of like what office you work in, um, so on and so forth. So um, that is kind of an introduction into into what I found in the historical basis for the profession of forensic psychology. And if you are interested, please reach out. I'd love to talk to you about it. Um, there's just so much out there that I hope I will be making more of these. Um, but for now, um, enjoy the rest of your day, get outside, take a nap. Um, but ultimately, just stay safe and I'll talk to you soon.